Great to be with you and uh, to enjoy some uh, worship and fellowship and opening God's Word together. I am, uh, I'm here to uh, talk about manhood, and as I do, I want to invite the men that are here to our Dude Talk tonight, 6.30, Crown Point Campus. We're going to talk about man stuff and uh, talk about it in a very manly sort of way. So men only, no girls, and uh, I think it'll be, it's going to be a, a wonderful night. Well, Pastor Jared, and don't we love Pastor Jared? First service clapped as well. Uh, Pastor Jared is preaching at uh, the Crown Point campus today. The message he gave here last week, What is a Woman?, and I'm here preaching, what is a man? So apparently, uh, leadership of the church thought that I was more qualified to preach on being a man, and Jared is a little more familiar with the subject of being a woman. Uh, that was pure humor at the beginning of the message. No, I, ser I seriously am so delighting in uh, the leadership he's providing to this campus, and uh, we're excited about what's going on here, for sure. So glad to be a part, hopefully add a little bit of, of truth and to challenge, especially the men here. But ladies, I got something for you as well, okay? So don't tune out. Appreciated, uh, I appreciated the, uh, the testimony, and it makes you think, if you're a dad, what will your son say about you someday? And uh, thank you so much for that, uh, for that challenge. This month, our whole month of January, Family Matters, we're talking about relationships in family and in the home. We're talking about um, uh, gender and femininity and masculinity. And our purpose is to improve and to help and to equip uh, the relationships in the home to be the very best they could be to the glory of God. Because, you know, if you were to pull the counseling uh, the number of counseling sessions and the time invested in our church, uh, nearly all of the counseling somehow relates to uh, relationships in the home. This is where the rub is. This is where the challenge is. And so how helpful we hope it is for us to just say, okay, let's talk about what, what should this look like. So what is a man? Now you might be saying, uh, you know, isn't that kind of self Evident, uh, Pastor Steve, like uh, we just sort of look at the DNA, look at the plumbing, and we uh, can tell who's a man and who is a woman. Or you can uh, you know, look for that Y chromosome and determine what is a man. Bada boom, bada bing, and a sermon, let's go home. If only it was that easy. And it certainly is not that easy in the day that we are living in because today increasingly that sort of legacy Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview that defined things like this uh, for centuries, literally, is being abandoned. And so we have matters like manhood, womanhood, marriage, family, all of these definitions are pretty much up for grabs. And people are defining them any way that they, that they want. In particular is the question, is biological birth, is there a tether between that biology at birth and the gender that you live out in your life? And today, 
Many schools, many places are saying there is no tether, there is no intent, and there certainly is no creator. A prominent example of this would be Facebook, which uh, recently listed under gender, in terms of your identity, 56 different options uh, that you could pick from. They currently have an option that is a custom box. In other words, create your own. Define yourself however you want to define yourself. And that custom box, more than anything else, summarizes the world that we're living in right now with respect to, to gender. I, I, I describe it here as the Build-A-Bear approach to gender. Just make it whatever you want it to be, which of course feels like freedom in our society. And a message like this is going to feel like bondage in our society. And uh, yet it reminds me a little bit of the ice storm we had last week. If you remember Saturday night, we had an ice storm. And I saw pictures the next morning, and there were all these cars on I-65 and 30. You know, they're turned over. They've wrecked and all of that. Imagine those cars on that ice storm as they left the road and thought, I'm free. (laughs) When is a car freest? When it's driving down the path that was made for it. And similarly, our gender and our sexuality, these are all things that our creator designed us to be and knows better than anybody else how this is supposed to look and how it's supposed to work. And we are freest when we are within those boundaries that he gave to us. And adding to this is the tragedy that human gender and human sexuality is a very beautiful thing. The way that God designed it is a very good thing. Thing. You think, why would we depart from something that's so wonderful and beautiful? Even Jesus himself celebrates male and female. They come to him with a hard question about divorce, and he says, Have you not read where in the beginning God created them male and female? And Jesus says that design at the beginning defines what uh, humanity is to be like. And so Jesus believed there were two genders, male and female, and here in our church we affirm God's basic design of male and female, and we see that not as a bad thing, but as a very good and beautiful thing when rightly expressed and lived out. So, let's get to the question now. What is a man? What is a man? Again, might be some men here going, uh, this is kind of obvious, isn't it, what a man is? Why are we even asking this question? Well, if you had a 10-year-old son and he asked you, Daddy, what is a man? What would you tell him? Would you say it's a, it's a Y chromosome? It's certain plumbing fixtures? What is a man? Because when a son asks that question, He is asking, essentially, who am I, and what am I supposed to be, and what am I supposed to become? It's a foundational question of of identity. Babies are born with male DNA and male plumbing, but nobody looks at a baby and says, oh, look, a man. Similarly, I would say that there is a difference between being a man and being, and, and maleness, Okay, maleness often is associated with, you know, muscles and and hair growing in certain places and then later in life hair not growing in certain places and growing in places you never expected it to grow, frankly. That is maleness, but but 
you know, being a man has nothing to do with a lot of these kind of stereotypes. A real man, you know, doesn't play the flute or maybe doesn't play in the, in the band at all because we all know the football team is for those who don't make the band. So what I'm encouraging today is for us to set aside maybe stereotypes that, that society historically has placed upon what it means to be a man. And let's ask the question, biblically, what is a man? So I have a definition here. My message is this. We're going to work through this definition slowly, and then we are going to apply it to some of the areas that uh, masculinity is called to be lived out, practically. Okay, so that's the message today. Here's my definition of a man. A man is a biological male human. Now that's controversial right there, but that's what I'm saying. A biological male human who embraces God's design for male headship, servant leadership, and sexual fidelity and protection of women. Now let's walk through this definition. A man is a biological male human. Again, that would not seem to be controversial, but we aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. The day that we live in, that is a a highly controversial statement to make. Uh, But we affirm that biology is by God's choice and his selection of gender is tethered to the biology of birth. They are together. We can change our clothes, but we cannot change our DNA. We are male or f- and female right down to the very, like the smallest fabric of what it means to be a human being. Who embraces God's design for headship. Now headship, this is an old word. We don't hear this word very often, but it is a Bible word. And uh, it is a biblical word. Okay, It signals strength and leadership. Strength and leadership. Here's one example from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Male headship. One way to think about headship is what non-headship is. So male passivity which is a huge problem, is not, that is not headship. Uh, Abdication of leadership, also a huge problem, is not headship. Again, headship is stewardship, strength, and care. The Bible affirms, by the way, and Jared talked about this last week, the Bible affirms that male and female are equal. Both bear the image of God, both made in the image of God. There is no There is no uh, statement of value at all with that, but also the Bible talks about how, by God's design, there are differing roles within this unity of value and purpose. So, for example, we, we, we see in the Trinity this same kind of picture. Within the Trinity, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all co equal, all equally valuable, all God, right? And yet, there are different roles within. The, trin- uh, the, tri- uh, the Trinity of God. This is not a bad thing. This is found in the very essence of the Godhead. It is, a, it is a good thing. When a church or family has biblically masculine men, guess what happens to the women? 
they become more beautifully feminine. These two things go together. When you have spiritually effeminate men, it hardens the women. They become more masculine. But when men can be masculine, now women can be beautifully feminine, which is what God called us to. I speculate this is one reason women like flowers, is because that flower, in a sense, represents a kind of femininity, which is beautiful in its blossom, in its, in its look, smell, all the rest. But for that flower to become a flower, there, there, there was a kind of uh, protection that was needed. That flower did not go through a hailstorm. Uh, that flower did not face a lawnmower. That flower was protected, and by that protection became the beautiful flower that it is. And women are like that when men are as God called men uh, to be. So by God's design, these two things go uh, together. And when they go together well, it amplifies the strengths of both of them as God designed. Okay, so who embraces God's design for male headship, servant leadership. Masculinity is servant leadership. Like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, men are called to the kind of of leadership that does not dominate, does not exploit women, but rather serves wives and family and children by putting their needs ahead of our own. And in this, we see that Christianity ennobles and, and protects women by serving and providing for them. When, when men do that, a marriage flourishes and a home flourishes. And, and I think about when Josh, when dad came home, what a difference that made. However many years ago, he's still talking about it. Okay? And in a church, when men are leading in servant leadership, it makes a profound difference in the culture of a church and indeed a community. So men, if I could just challenge, ask you right now, how are you doing with that? What would your wife, if you're married, say about like your servant leadership? What would your children say if you have children? Servant leadership, critically important. Sexual fidelity. Sexual fidelity. God calls, listen everyone, especially men, God calls men to protect the sexual virtue of women. By doing so, it actually enhances and channels sexual desire and pleasure the direction that God intended, which is in marriage. When, it is, when that is violated, it actually does damage to the man. I recently wrote an article Uh, for the Gospel Coalition, in which I talked about one of the issues we have in our congregation with men who are not able to be aroused with their wife. And you get behind the scenes with it, and it's because a life of pornography has shaped their perspective on what is sexually desirable. And it is actually hindering, get this, it is hindering the husbands. Now, how many men would willingly hinder that aspect of what it means to be a man? Not many. (laughs) 
fact, I, I uh, as many of you know, I love World War II, and I've read tons about uh, in World War II. You know the two things that soldiers in World War II were death, deathly afraid of? Number one was death. They didn't want to die. And secondly, they didn't want a, a wound in their manhood. And yet we have a whole generation of young men and now men who are unwittingly emasculating themselves. They think that they are gaining something, but every time a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more is taken away from them. A kind of like uh, self-castration, if you will. And this is what porn does. This is what sin does, by the way. All, sin is a thief. It says you're going to gain something in this sin, but it always takes away more than it gives. And porn quietly is taking away from men. And they are self-emasculating. Now, even if you're not married, you're like, I'm not married, so it's okay. No. You ever want to be married? You ever want an actual woman? It's this bed and the future bed. This is the danger. So to help you, maybe if you are facing temptation this week in this area, I borrowed this from a friend, and I'm just going to put it there as a little reminder of what's going on if you give in to that temptation. It's the fourth service now that I've done that, and uh, hopefully it's a strong illustration of what I'm talking about. Now, I'm talk I picked on porn, but it's true of all uh, ex sexual expressions outside of what God intended in the marriage, in the marriage bed. Again, God made us. He knows how it works best, and He is the one who said, "Let marriage, uh, let the mar marital bed be kept pure, and marriage honored by all." And what I'm saying is that true men will fight for the fidelity and the virtue of women by purity with them before marriage, and passionate fidelity to them after marriage. This is God's design. Super controversial. You're not going to hear what I just said anywhere else. But I just told you what the Bible said. And I urge you that this is the best way. This is the best way in his God's will. And finally, real manhood fights for the protection of women. Fights for the protection of women. When there is a sound in the night, did you hear that, honey? I did. Who goes to check it out? Now, if you're married to, you know, Xenia the princess warrior or something, maybe it's debatable, but I'm submitting to you that one of the roles of men is to protect women. That's what real men do. Think about the last moments of the Titanic. As that ship was going down, the lifeboats filled with women and children. What does that tell us? It tells us there were some real men on the, on the Titanic putting the needs of the women and the children first. Real men protect women. They don't exploit them. They don't pimp them. They don't traffic them. Real men honor girls, daughters, wives, and women and protect them. And young men need to hear that. I see some young men here. I got a few more things for the young men to say. The old men could amen what I just said if you wanted. I know, know you're with me. Okay. Okay. All right. I don't know. I'll look this up again. Maybe it helps. I don't know. Is everybody with me? 
Okay. So we look at that definition, and what I want you to realize is that real manhood is not about plumbing and DNA. It has to do with character. Character. That masculine character, which is under assault in the day that we live in, and this redefinition of what it means to be male is the loss of what God on the sixth day said was very good. And we need more masculine men, right? More masculine men. And this is where I think we have such an opportunity. You know, if we could fast forward 25 years, uh, what's our culture going to be like? I think it's going to be more like where it's going. And increasingly, to be a biblical man is itself going to be a testimony to the reality of a risen Savior. This is going to be an opportunity for our congregation to be a lighthouse in an increasingly effeminate or gender-confused world that we live in, what God intended for a man. And so the rest of my message now is taking that, app, that definition and saying, okay, what does this look like in some key categories of a man's life? And I begin with a man and his mission. A man and his mission Men, if I was to ask you, what is the mission of your life? What's the big thing in your life? What are you really trying to accomplish? What would you say? I'm going to tell you what the greatest man who ever lived said. Now you say, well, how do we know who the greatest man ever lived is? Jesus said about one guy, he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. And the scholars here know the answer. What's his name? John the Baptist. Okay? John the Baptist, greatest man ever lived. And what do we know about John the Baptist? John the Baptist understood his mission in his life. And his mission, which was given to him, he was a prophet of, uh, of God, but he knew that his mission was to bring glory to Jesus Christ. In fact, they came to him and they said, all your disciples are leaving you and going to Jesus. And John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And men, I would say to you, there is a kind of summary of what, as a man, the big goal of our life needs to be, which is, the goal of my life is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. He's my Savior, my Lord, my King. I want to glorify Him. It's not about me, it's about Him. And you talk about a sort of radical guy, John the Baptist, lived off the grid, ate off the land, cared little about fashionable dress or appearance, didn't bathe. He was organic before it was cool to be organic. John the Baptist. Now, men, to be clear, I do encourage bathing. And the women said, amen to that. Amen. But what made John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived? He understood his mission. He knew his purpose. And the goal of his life was a spiritual one. It wasn't a material one. It wasn't a political one. It was a spiritual goal to bring glory to Jesus Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. Here at Bethel, we would say he was an all about him man. He was all about him. And that was so culturally radical in that day. People came out by the thousands just to look at him and, and hear him. And I would say to you men, it is countercultural today to be a man whose primary goal and mission is to make much of Jesus Christ in their life. 
And I say this because the burden I have in my heart is there are so many men who are wasting their lives and wasting their masculinity, that strength that God put into the DNA of what it means to be a male and a man is being wasted on things that in the end don't matter. How many men burning nights, hours, hundreds of thousands of hours playing video games? Adult men playing video games. Now, it's not a sin to play a video game. But if this is the obsession of your life, if your goal is to get from this level to that level, and that's the big purpose of your life, you're wasting your life. You are wasting the masculinity that God gave to you. And if the game is the big thing, whatever game that is, or the this or the that, ask yourself, in a thousand years, does this matter? Because if it doesn't matter in a thousand years, your masculinity is not worth wasting on it. And I'm urging the men in our church to don't just say Jesus is Lord of my life, but to actually say he is the Lord of my life and how can I take all of the strength that God has given to me and pour myself into making much of Jesus? Now you might say, well, that means I gotta go you know, be a missionary or something. No, maybe. But primarily, God's calling for men is to make much of Jesus in the callings of the day-to-day of life. And that may be in your singleness. It may be in your marriage. It might be in your parenting. In your vocation, these are all the spaces and places that a masculine, godly man strives to make much of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask, are you doing that? Or are you wasting your life? You are not if the goal of your life is that Jesus must increase. And I just want to remind us, we are men on a mission. Jesus said, you are to go and to make disciples of all nations. The big thing here is the gospel and the glory of Christ. And too many men pretend like that's the big thing, but then they squabble away their life on so much lesser things. And you're men. And our homes and our children desperately need the men of our church to be Men, deeply masculine and godly men. And, when, and here's the great thing about being a Christian man is that the callings that God has for us flow in the passions that we have if we're actually Christians in the first place. You know, this is like Jesus who came to Peter. Do you remember? He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. Jesus comes back to him and says, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. He comes again. Peter, do you love me? And in a way, Jesus comes to the man and says, do you love me? Now, show that. Show that in the callings and the categories of your life. Show that you love me. Take all of that strength of character and the grit and the determination that God has, that marks men. And take all of that and do manhood to the glory of God. Now, a non-Christian hears this, and maybe you're not a Christian here today, and this sounds like nonsense to you. And in, in the culture, this would sound like nonsense. 
But that's because they've never had a faith encounter with Jesus Christ. I'm talking to men who most of you, I think, would profess that you've had a faith encounter with Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and King of your life. And your manhood is a part of how you bring glory to the King. And I'm urging you to do it. So don't waste your masculinity on things that in the end don't matter. Use it everywhere for his glory. That's a man and his mission. You with me? All right. Let's talk about a man and his mommy. A man and his mommy. 200 years ago, I wouldn't have had to preach on this probably, but we live in a day that idolizes adolescence and provides opportunities, many homes provide opportunities for boys never to grow up and to perpetuate their adolescence. And mommy and daddy are playing a role in little Johnny never quite growing up. Again, in ancient cultures, it didn't happen. You got to a certain age and poof, off you go. Okay, you know, there were no basements, so you're not living in our basement. Off you go. But today, hiding behind words like stewardship, saving money, you know, these sorts of things, little Johnnies never have to grow up. Mommy keeps doing the laundry. Daddy keeps paying the, the cell phone bill. Little Johnny's got it good. He's on the gravy train. He ain't ever leaving that basement. Why would he? So mom and dad, I'm saying to our church in this message, you are doing your little Johnny no favor by allowing him to remain there in the basement or the attic because there is something about paying your own way that turns boys to men. Okay? He needs to pay his own way. He needs to find his own way. Now little Johnny right now is saying, don't be listening to Pastor Steve because you... I am the exception to that rule, you know, mom and dad, la, 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 don't be, la, 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 don't be listening. Now, are there emergencies? Yes. Does life happen? Yes. Are there mitigating circumstances? Yes. But in general, little Johnny becomes big Johnny when he takes responsibility for his life. And mommy and daddy need to help him do that. So, I would say, let this be an opportunity to have a chat with little Johnny, perhaps, today. And encourage him to get off the dole. Let him grow up. And you know what might happen if he gets out of your house? He might find a woman. And they might have grandkids. Did you know grandkids are God's gift to parents for kicking their kids out of the house? <laughs> and all the grandparents here said, amen. amen to that. Get out and get some kids coming here. Amen. All right. A man and his marriage. Noticing the theme here, the M theme. A man and his marriage. Here is Ephesians 5, the most critical words in all the Bible for being a godly Christian husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Notice the command, love your wives. Agape, your wives. And we hear that, 
as husbands and we think, okay, I can do that. And we think of other people that don't do it very well. Uncle Bob, my brother-in-law, whatever. And we think, I'm doing pretty good because I'm, I'm not as bad as, as Uncle Bob. But notice that Paul gives the aspirational example. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? Gave himself up for her. There's the cross. So the cross of Jesus is the emblem and the paradigm for the Christian husband to know how am I to relate to my, to my wife. That love that Christ displayed on the cross and gave himself up for her. There's the crucifixion. And men, listen to me. And young men, single men that are here, you, you listen to me. I, many of you know I got married a little later in life. Uh, some of you were probably at my wedding. I've been, this summer will be 10 years married. And uh, we haven't made it yet, okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, but I'm here to tell you that marriage and being a husband is a kind of personal, willing, get on the cross and be crucified. That's what it means to be a husband. Now that isn't, you know, they don't have that on eHarmony or Match.com or something like that. But that's what it means to be a husband if you're going to be a, a, a Christian husband. A self-crucifixion a death for others. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. This headship then is the most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him, is in her own mere nature least lovable. For the church has no beauty but that what the bridegroom gives her, he does not find but makes her Lovely. That's one you might need to chew on a little bit. But essentially what he is saying here is that the marriage that most resembles Jesus in the church is that marriage where the wife is least lovable or beautiful and yet the husband loves her anyway and that love produces in her a kind of beauty. Because the church was dog ugly, okay? Ugly, 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 that's us. And yet he loved us anyway. And by his love, look at the beauty that he is producing in the bride of Christ. And so men, this is the call that we have. And we need to take this very seriously. Now some of you wives right now are, th are saying, you're like, I don't like this kind of talk. I mean, you're not dying, sweetheart. You're gaining because you gain me. Okay, that's the honeymoon. I'm talking about the other 50 years that follow that. What is the call on a daily basis? It's the paradigm of the cross where I prioritize the needs of my wife, and if I have children, the needs of the children. I, I, will, I put their needs ahead of my own. I, I die to myself for their sake. This is... Christian masculinity with hair on its chest. This is strength to die to self. Now note that we prioritize them. We don't worship them. 
The unduly demanding wife doesn't want to be loved. She wants to be worshipped. And the Christian man does not do that. And by the way, Christian wives don't require that. There's a word to the wives here as well. But most of us aren't in danger of too much sacrifice. We tend to err on the other side of that, uh, of that horse. Was Jesus passive? If he was passive, we all go to hell. You realize that? He took the initiative. He was incarnated. He lived his life. He went to the cross. All of these are masculine traits of initiative. We would say it this way. Men take care of business. There is a seizing of opportunity and a making something happen that is a part of being a man. And we see that in Jesus. And in marriage, that means that husbands are called to take the lead, but this is a lead of love. It is a lead of what's best for the family and for my wife. When women seize that initiative, they are reenacting what caused the whole problem in the first place. You realize, you know, we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, we say, what was the first sin? They ate the fruit. They shouldn't have eaten the fruit. Why did they eat the fruit? That wasn't the first sin. The sin before the eating of the fruit was Eve taking the initiative in the relationship. She gave the fruit to Adam. And the misery that that act created is reenacted as well in marriages where women take that male masculine leadership. And the misery of that is immeasurable. We see even... Uh, in the curse, God says, oh, Eve, you wanted to take the lead? Well, now you're going to want uh, Adam's position all the time, and you're going to chafe about it. Ever since, a wife's temptation is to dominate her husband, and the husband's temptation is to let her. And that kind of hen-pecked husband stereotype is an indication of a failure of the husband and the wife. And so, dear sisters, if I may in love appeal to you in this point, that you want your husband to step up and to lead, and for him to do so, might you need to dial it down a little and give him a little wiggle room to be able to do this kind of leading. Maybe that means that you slow down in the sharing of your opinion that sounds like a mandate to him. You might nurture a more masculine husband, and wouldn't that be a delightful development in your life? A man in his marriage, okay? A man in his marriage. Third, I think, a man and his mates. And by mates, I mean friends. That's the best word I could come up with to keep the M, uh, <laughs> the M thing going. Uh, so I'm talking about friendship, okay? Male friendship. The modern man is a very lonely man. In fact, I could dare say we could assume with a man that we would meet even here in this service, he is likely a lonely man. It is difficult for men to develop friendships with other men. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But there is a kind of pandemic of male loneliness in our culture today and even in the church. 
and I speak to this, if I'm saying this and you're like, you know what, that's me, I, I, I resonate with that and I sympathize with that. And I want to promote men being vulnerable enough to develop friendships with other men. This is where in the church it should be a little easier because to be in the church, you're being vulnerable enough to say that I am a sinner, I have done terrible things, I don't deserve the grace of God, and that's how you get into the church. I've, I've joked before, the church is the only place where you've got to confess you're a sinner to get in, and you spend the rest of the time trying to convince people you're not. Uh, no, we all are sinners, and that kind of a mutual confession and vulnerability is a wonderful basis for friendship within the church. But man, I want to say uh, the kind of risk that it takes to develop men, male friendship is worth it. Is worth it. One of the best friends that I have in my life right now, uh, he came to visit our church many years ago, and uh, I went to coffee with him, and we were talking, and I just liked him, okay? I just liked him. And I took a deep breath at the end, and I said, I like you. I said, I think we should be friends. And he said, I think we should as well. And that friendship blossomed uh, from there. We're going to go spend time with them. They live in Arizona now in a, in a few weeks. And it's a lifelong friendship. But it required a little bit of kind of like risky vulnerability to say, hey, can we maybe take this friendship to another level? This is not natural for men. You ladies, this is like so easy for you. But we men, it's hard. Then we have social media, which feels like friendship. You know, like, I'm not lonely. I've got 300 friends on Facebook. I mean, how could I be lonely? <laughs> I've got all these friends. And yet male friendship now is like texting. We're super close. How do you know? We texted last month, you know. Four words and an emoji, you know, like, we're like BFF now. In male world, that's almost the level of intimacy, and it's difficult to get past that. I, this morning, before the service, I was in the, in the parking lot before I walked in the building, and I texted my lifelong best friend. And I said to him, I said, I had a dream last night that you and I went to a Rams football game together, which is true. He was in my dream last night. And uh, he texted back and said, sounds like fun. Now, I could say that to him because we are friends. If you have a dream about me, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> but this is what friendship allows. And it's a blessing. And so I would encourage you men, even, even if you're in middle age or older, don't deprioritize having other men in your life and be willing to take a little bit of risk even verbally to say, you know what, I think, I, I think you know, maybe this could be a kind of a, a friendship. You never know what good things could come of that and what a blessing it could be in your life. Fight against loneliness with authentic relationships with other men. You know, the greatest man who ever lived surrounded himself with 12 other men. Maybe that's a, a place to start. And finally... Pastors always say that and go for 20 more minutes, but I mean it. And finally, let's talk about a man and his master. 
a man and his master. Think with me of the stereotypical men's retreat. Like if we were going to have a men's retreat and we're like, what are we doing on the men's retreat? Here's a stereotypical men's retreat. Uh, we're going to get away and we're going to eat meat and we're going to throw knives and we're going to watch UFC and we're going to compare facial hair and we're going to listen to at least one sermon resembling brave hearts. You can't take away my freedom. You know, and that sort of this like man thing sort of flows in the direction of, you know, the steakhouse or the football stadium or something like that. And the Bible has a lot to say about being a man, but it never takes us that direction. It always takes us to the cross. Because there on the cross, the most masculine man who ever lived demonstrated what it means to be a real man. And he gave himself up for us. And there is a deep spiritual connection between masculinity in a man and his passion for Jesus Christ. One more quote. Theology and church and mission are marked by overarching godly male leadership in the spirit of Christ with an ethos of tender-hearted strength and contrite courage and risk-taking decisiveness and readiness to sacrifice for the sake of leading, protecting, and providing for the community all of which is possible only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the great feel of a great majestic God who by his redeeming work in Jesus Christ inclines men to take humble, Christ-exalting initiative and inclines women to come alongside the men with joyful support, intelligent helpfulness, and fruitful partnership in the work. What kind of community are we striving for at Bethel Church? It's that. Deeply masculine men and beautifully wonderful feminine women together for the glory of God. You find a, a campus or a church where the women are doing everything, you will find always spiritually effeminate men. But where men and women serve together, as God intended, the beauty of those two complementary genders come together in wonderfully masculine men and beautifully feminine women, which is what the Garden of Eden was like before the fall. And by the way, someday the new earth will be as well, where all the men there will indeed be men. Amen.